Well, I hadn't sung that one either. <laughs> but it's a, it's a great one. It's a great one to, uh, to let us think of the things of, of the Lord and to learn from those things. It's good to be back with you. It's been a couple of several weeks. Maybe it's been three weeks or so since I've been here. But it's always good to see you guys and to see new faces, meet some new folks. Today, it's our privilege as a family to have our daughter Grace and her son Lawrence. They live in Garner. They're here with us today. And Anna and Paul and Olivia from uh, Apex, Carrie, however we want to figure out which part of that area they live in. But uh, it's good to have family here um, to be together and to worship the Lord this morning. I'm going to ask you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the passage that we're looking at today from Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 31. This is not going to be a, uh, a passage with which you're unfamiliar. This is one that I think that's very familiar to most of us because it talks about the rich young ruler, and we remember the story but we're going to look at this together, this account from the life of Jesus, and we're going to read it. I'm going to begin reading at Mark 10 at verse 17. And he was setting out on his journey. As he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. This is God's word. Let's bow and pray together. Father, as we come to this part of 
uh, studying your scripture, this part of the worship service as we come to look at this passage before us. We ask that you would truly open our minds and our hearts, open our understanding, enable us to take in the things that you have for us here. We pray for your Holy Spirit's great work in us, that he would so uh, work in us that we would be able to apply and he would apply those things to us that we need. We pray for this week in front of us. We pray for all the things to take place and we ask for your grace in those. And we ask it, it all in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Well, when, when we take a familiar passage of scripture like this one, it's always good for us to, to think about what's being asked. And right here in this passage, the Lord Jesus Christ uh, is taking a question from his disciples. His disciples are going to look at him eventually and say, well, who then could be saved? Because this young man that came to them caused them to think about several things that they hadn't thought about in ways that they hadn't thought about it. But if there's any question that has, I guess, troubled humanity, most, most of uh, our history, even since the beginning, it's who then can be saved. In this passage that we're looking at this morning, we see this rich young man who has already achieved a lot. He's achieved a lot in his life. He's young. He's uh, probably less than 30. And in this age, he's wealthy. We're told that both in Luke and here in uh, Mark. We're told that he's wealthy. We're told that he has achieved status in the community, that he's recognized as a leader. And so this man, you know, he has what the world wants. He has some amount of, of uh, community acceptance. He has money. He has power. He has a position and a place. And so he comes to Jesus with this desire and with this hope. And he wanted to know what he lacked. You know, he said, okay, my life is not satisfying as it is now. I feel that there's something that I'm missing, so what is it? Is there one thing, just one more thing that I could do that would give me satisfaction in my heart? Well, he wanted to know what that one thing might be to satisfy his yearnings and his heart's desires. But after talking with Jesus for just a few minutes, we know that he went away sad and grieving. Jesus told him what to do and how to be saved. And you know what he did? We know how to have, tre he wanted to know how to have treasure in heaven, how to find eternal life and be satisfied and happy in this life. Jesus told him how and he turned away and he went away sad. He went away unhappy. He walked away without it. Now, in our day, there's a lot of disagreement about salvation. If we would talk to different people out in, in society itself, in our culture, there would some people who would even question if there is such a thing as salvation, whether there is salvation for anyone. But it seems that most of the time we find about three different views. One view says basically everybody's going to heaven. We usually call this the universalist view. 
So everybody's going to heaven. Well, of course, I guess some, there's always some to be excluded, like the Hitlers and Stalins of this world. So we're not going to accept that they're going, but most everybody else is going. That's basically what the, um, what the universalists teach. Of course, I don't guess they believe serial killers and rapists and child molesters are going, but, you know, so everybody excludes somebody. So they're excluding those really, really bad types. Traditional conservatives might say, no, only moral people who've lived really good lives are going to go to heaven and be saved. And then the ordinary secular person in our society might say, well, good people and generous people, maybe like Mother Teresa, we know that, that they're going to go, and maybe there's no hell anyway. So, you know, there's all these views floating around about what it means to have eternal life and who's going to have it. Jesus' disciples were kind of like the third secular group in a way because they felt that well-to-do people were obviously people who had experienced God's blessing already. And if God was blessing them in this life, surely that was indicative of something that he was going to do in life eternal. So they kind of felt like that. And they were amazed when Jesus said, you know, how hard it is for the rich person to go to heaven. And they thought, what do you mean? How hard it is for the rich person to go to heaven? They're the ones with God's blessing. They ought to be the ones to go. They ought to be the ones that we expect to go. Well, I find it interesting that in our world today, even people who don't particularly consider themselves religious or spiritual, they're looking for ways to make a mark on this world. They're looking for ways to have a legacy. Uh, for instance, if, you, if you've ever watched any of the uh, Netflix documentaries on people like Bill and Melinda Gates and their foundation. You know, they're trying to solve some really difficult human problems. They're trying to solve problems like um, polio, eradicating polio from completely from all the world. They're down to about uh, a few uh, areas of Nigeria and probably Mali, some of those places in Africa where there's still a few cases of polio. They've tried to do that. They've also tried to st stop children from dying of, of these childhood diseases, mostly the uh, ones born by polluted water. Uh, then uh, he's also, Bill Gates and Melinda have also tried to help produce better, cleaner energy, renewable energy, and they want to give away and they have given away computers and programming to all kinds of people to try to better their lives through access to what most all of us have, internet connections and stuff like that. Elon Musk, of course, is, the, is a, taking a different thing. He wants to save humanity by sending us to another planet like Mars. He wants to, his basic view is we've ruined this one and one day we're going to have to leave it because it's going to be ruined. So let's find a way to get out somewhere else. Let's go to Mars. That's the closest one. Let's just, that's why he developed SpaceX. So here you are. You've got all kinds of people who want to leave a legacy. 
Maybe they're not religious. Maybe they're not Christian. Maybe they're not spiritual. They wouldn't consider themselves at all. But what they're saying is, I feel the need to find an answer to do something that betters humanity and leaves a mark on this world. Well, we go back to looking at what the rich young ruler was asking, and I think there's a, about three things that we can think about. What did Jesus say about who can be saved? How did salvation, how does it happen? And then thirdly, what about good works? What part do they play? Well, let's talk about what Jesus said. What Jesus said in Mark chapter 10 and in Luke 18, which is the parallel passage, when he talked to this rich young ruler, Jesus, uh, there were actually three things in Luke 18 that were kind of connected that are interesting to see how Luke did this. Uh, the first one is the parable between the Pharisee and the tax collector. And you remember these two go up to the temple and you know the Pharisee brings out all the things that he's done. I fast twice a week, you know, I give I tithe from everything I get, you know, I live a righteous life basically. The uh, tax collector wouldn't stand anywhere close to anybody else. He was over and away. He beat his chest and basically he said, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now, Jesus said that the Pharisee that trusted that he was righteous enough already wasn't going. It was the second man the man who said, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner, who went down to his house justified. Now, of course, that's, we think of that as the biblical language of salvation, being justified in God's sight. The second thing that Luke tells us right before he gets to the uh, story about the, uh, to the occasion about the rich young ruler, he tells about when little children were coming up to Jesus. And little children were coming up, and Jesus said, Whoever receives the kingdom of God in a child, with a childlike faith like these is going to enter the kingdom of God. So he's talked about who couldn't go, the self-righteous man, who could go, the man who understood that he was a sinner. Then he goes and he says, A childlike faith is necessary. And then he came to the story of the rich young ruler. And when he told about this rich young ruler that came to Jesus, Luke recording all of this, he said, that young man came up to Jesus and said, good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? He basically thought, I've lived this moral life. I have satisfied, uh, I've satisfied the law. I've kept the law. I've kept the commandments. And he said, what do I need? What am I missing? I feel like I need to do something else, but I don't know what's lacking. And like most religious Jews, this man saw his own salvation was something that was achieved by a moral life. And you know, again, we have the same kind of view today. Uh, if I live a good life, if I do good to my neighbor, if I treat people fairly, if I don't cheat on my family or cheat on my taxes or if I don't abuse people at work, then I'll be fine. This young man was kind of like that. He was, he was an honorable, moral person who lived a good life in the community, kind of like Nicodemus. 
in John chapter 3. Jesus, though, stopped him right there. And Jesus first asked him, he said, you came up to me and you said, good teacher, what must I do to be saved? Why did you call me good? There's nobody good but God alone. Now, this man should have known that already, shouldn't he? I mean, he, he, he's been in the context of the worship center. He's been to the temple. He's been to understand the commandments. He's heard rabbis speak. You would think he knew that. He should have known that none of us are good in ourselves and that there's only one that's truly good, and that's God alone. To point this out, Jesus said to him, okay, let's talk to you. If you say you're, you've already met that standard, let me talk to you about the commandments. And did you notice he starts with the commandments and he goes right down. He starts with six. He goes six, seven, eight, nine, ten. And then he jumps back and he quotes number five. He quotes commandment number five. He goes through all these commandments and what we call the second table of the law. You know, Moses had two tablets that he'd written on. The ones that were related to God, the ones that were related to our, uh, our interaction with people, how we treat others. So basically, Jesus starts with that second tablet. And he says, how'd you do with all those? Did you honor your father and mother? What about adultery? What about killing and stealing? What about defrauding your neighbor? And he, and he looks at this young man, and the young man says, well, I've kept all of those since I was a youth. And Jesus looked at him, and you know it does say, in, uh, especially in Mark, it says Jesus looked at him and loved him. Jesus loved this man. He was, he was somebody that was trying to do the right thing. He said, though, this to him. He said, okay, I'm going to tell you what you lack. What you lack is this. Go, sell everything that you have, give that money to the poor, and then come follow me, and you're going to have treasure in heaven. Now, what this man missed, you see, was the first commandment. Because the first commandment says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of your slavery and Egypt, he says, you shall have no other gods before me. I'm the Lord your God, you shall have no other gods before me. I am to be in first place in your heart and life. See, that's what the rich young ruler missed because it becomes very evident. The young man basically was asking Jesus what he needed to do and Jesus says, you need to put everything out, everything else that's in first place in your life and get rid of that. And once you do, you can come follow me and you'll have treasure in heaven. In Mark chapter 10, in verse 22, it says this man went away sad and gloomy and grieving. Now those are, that's a, that's a sad passage to read, isn't it? Because here he is, Jesus is talking to him. Jesus has told him what he needs and what he needs to do. And this, and this young man just hears it, but he can't do it. He can't give up what's in tro controlling his heart. He can't give up that one thing that's blocked him, that he's holding on to, that he just is unwilling to, 
to relinquish. And as he left, Jesus looked at his disciples and he said, how difficult it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. How difficult it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. And then he went one step further. He said, how hard it is for anyone to enter into the kingdom of God. Now that should have knocked them back and rocked them back on their feet. It's not only the rich that it's hard for, but it's hard for anybody. How hard it is for anyone in general to enter the kingdom of God. And then in the next verse he says, but it's especially hard for the rich because it's actually easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for the rich man to enter heaven. Now, Jesus was taking the biggest thing that was in society. There's a camel. I mean, that, those camels that carried those, you know, those huge loads you know, on the caravan routes into the cities and so forth, the camel that has been around for so long, this huge camel that stands you know, this high carrying all this stuff, that's one of the biggest things in their society. And then one of the smallest things in their society is the eye of the needle. I mean, how difficult it is for us, even with good eyes, to take that little bitty piece of, of uh, twine or whatever and bring it through the eye of a needle. It's difficult. And to take a camel and to shove it through that, that would be ridiculous. I mean, that's impossible. It's no way. No way you can do that. Jesus is saying them then, and he goes on to say it, with men, this is impossible. It's hard for the rich man. It's, it's hard for everybody else. And it's even more difficult for the rich man because it's like trying to shove a camel through the tiniest thing we've got, the eye of a needle. So he's basically saying the self-righteous can't get there, like he said in Luke chapter 8. He says those that don't have a childlike faith can't get there. And then he says moral people who've kept part of the commandments and missed the others, they can't get there either. So the disciples are in a terrible place. How do people come to the kingdom? How do people find salvation? How do people experience eternal life? You know what Jesus said in verse 27 of Mark chapter 10? Jesus said, with people it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. So there's the hope, isn't it? He didn't leave them without hope. He brought that up. He says, with men it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. When you think back to Nicodemus, we remember what Jesus told Nicodemus. Jesus said, no one can ever even see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. No one can even see it at a distance unless he's born again. He said, you have to be born again. You have to be born from above. You have to be born of God's regenerating work. So if we could bring Nicodemus' understanding to the young man there, um, in this chapter in Mark, we could see that there's that whole matter of regeneration, what we call regeneration or being born again, 
Unless a person's born again, he can't even see the kingdom of God. Titus 3, 5 says, God saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. So there that cuts out most of the people in our society today where we are thinking about what salvation is. Salvation is not being a good moral, por moral person, not even being a good generous moral person. He says, not on the basis of deeds done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. So how do we get, how do we find eternal life? We find it because of the mercy of God. And he says, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. So can anyone save themselves by good deeds? <laughs> Doesn't look like it, does it? I can't shove a camel through the eye of a needle. And, you know, you, you think the things that are impossible with men, though, are possible with God. He says, not by solving the problems of humanity, not by colonizing another planet. He says, it, salvation comes through the work of God, the mercy of God, when He regenerates us, when He causes us to be born again. You know, Salvation comes by this great regenerating work of the Spirit of God where He enables us to see and hear and understand. Isn't that what we pray when we get up here on Sunday mornings, that God will help us to see, hear, and understand? It's a spiritual thing. It's, everything is spiritual in this life, not just material, not just like material things that we can touch and we can sit in and we can eat or we can drive. We live in a material world, but there's a spiritual world. And the spiritual world is we must be born again. We must be born again of God's Holy Spirit. It must be the regenerating work, the powerful work of God where he enables the dead hearts, as he calls us in Ephesians 2, to believe, to understand what the gospel is, to take it in for us to be enabled to believe it, to embrace it to understand it and then to believe it and to take it into our hearts. The new birth is this miracle of God's grace. Yet, the new birth being still the miracle of God's grace, every single one of us, because we're made in the image and likeness of God, are responsible to God to repent of our sins and believe in Jesus. Because we live in Jesus' world. We live in the God, world God made. Everything around here should point us to Him. The creatures, when they sing, sing to the glory of God. Everything around us points us to God. And so much of our lives we often spend looking at ourselves and our material world and we neglect and even push down and suppress the knowledge of God. We did that until that day when God by His mercy caused His Holy Spirit to work in us so that we heard that gospel and it was like we never heard it before. And it made sense to us like it never made sense before. And we saw it and we understood that Jesus came to be the sacrifice for sin. That He came to die on the cross so that He could bear our sins, so that we could be forgiven. So that we could have what He calls sonship. So that we could be on the same level with Jesus Christ in the sense that we are forgiven and loved and embraced and treated as sons and daughters in the kingdom of God. Now, we didn't grow up in prominent families, did we? 
We didn't grow up in famous families. We didn't grow up necessarily in wealthy families. But God has given us the riches of His grace when He's poured it out on us by causing us to see and hear and understand and believe. And if you haven't done that yet, I trust that you will do that. That God the Holy Spirit will enable you to see, hear, and understand. And you'll say, I need to repent of my sins. I need to believe in Jesus. I need to walk with Him. Jesus says, put everything else and life aside. Put me at the first of your life and your heart. Follow me, and you'll have treasure in heaven. We're told in the Bible about this rich young ruler so that we'll turn away from the idols of our hearts, the things that we just hold on to, the things that we just think we've got to have, the things that life has to be. Some people, it's success, you know, it has to be, if I can't, if I can't do this, if I can't, uh, if I can't achieve this level, if I can't be CEO of my company, if I can't have $10 million by the time I'm 30, if I can't go out and get elected to a public office, if I can't take this position at work, then I'm nothing. And that's all I'm living for, is to make that one thing. But you make it. Is it worth it? You try and you strive and you strive and you strive, but we don't get there and it becomes an idol of our heart. And even finding that the idol that we get doesn't satisfy. We can look at so many people in history and say the idol that they got, they, they got and it never satisfied them. We're told in the Bible about this rich young ruler who had an idol in his heart. And he struggled, and he turned away, and he lost it. But the Bible tells us who can be saved. The Bible says uh, it's not the one who trusts in his or her good works, but in the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit, that God is the one who's going to save us, that God is the one who's going to bring us into his family. As many as received him, to them he gave the right and the privilege to become the sons and daughters of God. That's what John 1.12 says. So the disciples, when they heard all that, said, Lord, you told that man to leave everything and to follow you. And we have left everything and followed you. So does our life matter does giving up everything like we've given up everything for you, does that really matter? What about us? Now, Jesus' answer to them was both amazing and encouraging. Because in verses 29 and 30, he says, yes, your good works do matter and they will be rewarded. And then he tells them about what the reward will be. He says... For those who have followed me, in other words, for those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus, and you've been called upon to give up things in this life, like homes and families and property and relationships and money and fame and success. If you've been called to give up all of these things, don't think that you won't be rewarded. Because he says, in this life, you are going to be rewarded. You're going to be rewarded with, you gave up your mother and father, you're going to have more mothers and fathers in the church, in the Christian family, 
you gave up a, a marriage relationship, you're going to have all kinds of relationships within the body of Christ. You gave up money for the kingdom of heaven. You gave up property for the kingdom of heaven. You're going to have places where you can go and stay. Susan and I watched the other day uh, one of these uh, home improvement shows from Fixer to Fabulous. Uh, the couple in Arkansas, and they were fixing up this home for these missionary friends of theirs. They were fixing up this apartment for these missionary friends of theirs, and they fixed it up. And they put all kinds of neat stuff in there, and they said, stay here. You're, you're home from the field for a while. Stay here as long as you want. We've not, our, church in, um, our church in Marion, North Carolina, we had a mission house right across the street. And we had missionaries come in there, stay for six months or three months, a year. The only thing they ever had to pay were utilities. Lots of churches do this, don't we? Because what do we do? If you've given up father and mother, sister and brother, lands, homes, fame, all of this, you've got a new family now, and from this new family there are rewards and blessings. And you're going to have those now, and you're going to have those forever. I've told you that uh, when I was in West Africa, there were uh, almost all of the, the pastors that I worked with had paid a heavy price to be Christians. One man by the name of Abu uh, was from Gambia, a little bitty tiny country in the middle of Senegal. And he told his father, who was a Muslim scholar, he told his father that he'd become a Christian. And his father said, okay, tomorrow we're going to get the whole family together. And he got the whole family together the next day and he said, this my son is now dead to us. Nobody will feed him. Nobody will give him money. Nobody will give him shelter in our family. Nobody will give him a job. He's dead to us. He's away. And all the 90 members of the family that gathered that day, they said, yep. That's what we do to people like him who turn away. My friend uh, Mamadou, he became a Christian in his village and when he would go out to sit to have tea with the, his other former friends, his other friends from the, from the village, when he would go sit, they would all turn their backs on him and then get up and leave and leave him. They wouldn't talk to him. They wouldn't have anything to do with him. Sariki, who was from the Ivory Coast, when he told his father that he and his brother had become Christians, his father ran him out of the house with a machete and said, never come back because I'll never have an infidel in my home. All these men paid a, a real heavy price for becoming Christians. They left father and mother and sister and brother and homes and lands and reputations and they gave up all of it for Christ. Is there no reward for that? Jesus says, of course there is, because now you've got a new family. Now you've got a new home. Now you've got people who will love and care for you. Now you've got a blessing there. Now this doesn't mean that we're gonna be rich in this world. This doesn't mean that all our problems are gonna be away. Usually it means just the opposite, because Jesus in here said, you're not only going to have those things, but persecutions. Because persecutions come too with the Christian faith. But he says you will have people 
to help you with this. Your works do matter. What you've done does matter. You not only have help in this life and blessing in this life and mercy in this life, but in the life to come, you have everlasting life. Your works do matter because there are going to be blessings ultimately in heaven which we can't take in in the new age when everything is new and we can't imagine that. A world without sin, a world without hatred, a world without injustice, a world without cruelty, a world of perfection. That's what the new age is going to be like when Jesus comes and initiates his kingdom. When it's going to be revealed and fulfilled and we live forever in that new age, we're going to have blessings that we can't imagine. The Apostle Paul, when he reflected on it, said in 2 Corinthians, For our light and momentary affliction is working for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison, which we which we look not at the, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things not seen are eternal. Those things that last forever. What you do in this life matters. And I hope as believers, we attempt to do great things for God. We attempt to solve problems that others have tried to solve and maybe failed that we attempt to do good things for humanity and our fellow human beings. We ought to, because we're to live our whole lives for the glory of God. But we remember that God has done everything for us. We do it all for Him, for God's glory, and for the sake of the kingdom, because we have a Savior who loved us and who gave up everything for us and for our salvation. Let's bow and pray. Father, we thank you that the Lord Jesus Christ has come, that he has gone to the cross for us. He lived a perfect life. He has gone to the cross for us. He saved us by his death on the cross. He purchased heaven for us. He's redeemed us. And now we look forward to not only the life that we have here, but the life that we have forever because we know that that matters the most. We thank you for our families, our friends, our loved ones, our neighbors, our Christian friends. And we pray that, Father, we will live more and more for the glory of your name and for your kingdom. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.